Guys, welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. As you know, my good friend Jason Harrison, the founder of Kuyu Ultralight Hunting, has passed away within a matter of days ago. And the whole hunting community is in shock. All his family and friends obviously are in shock. And we're just so distraught about the tragedy that's happened. And I've tried on my Instagram account uh, some of the hunts that I was on with Jason I have tried to uh, bring out some of those videos where people could see the guy that he was and and, um, just try and shed light on on some of the things that he accomplished and that he did. And I I got to thinking um, I had done a bunch of podcasts with Jason. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and find some of the better podcasts that I did with Jason uh, and I'm going to bring them back to you. And I think I've been listening to them myself and I've gotten a lot of value out of them. And I've been able to reminisce about Jason and the guy that he was and the passion that he had for the hunting business. And uh, I just think a lot of people are going to get um, a lot of value out of listening to what he had to say, whether you're building a business, whether you're hunting, whether you're, you know, whatever you're doing. Uh, I think there's lots of great tidbits uh, throughout these podcasts. So, uh, guys, um, on Instagram, I love the hashtag KuyuStrong. And um, I also, uh, Jason's family has asked, um, in lieu of flowers or or anything like that, to donate to um, the uh, CTE uh, studies and and foundation. They're, They're... they're studying uh, the effects of CTE, and I'm going to put a link for that in these show notes. And um, to all of Jason's, you know, to the whole Kuyu Nation, to Jason's family and friends, um, you know, this is a very, very difficult time. And I thought one of the best ways to um, highlight some of the things that Jason has done is to bring back his own voice and to um, replay some of these podcast episodes. So um, it's going to be tough to listen to, but I think um, in listening to all of these, I've, I've just gotten a, a new appreciation for uh, some of the things that he stood for and what have you. I want to thank you guys, the listeners, for this podcast, your loyalty to this podcast. And I also want to thank the sponsors of this podcast. Obviously, Kuyu, uh, Ultralight Hunting, Kuyu.com. Jason Harrison and his whole crew over there at Kuyu has been a sponsor of my podcast uh, for well uh, for for many years now, and I want to thank them for their sponsorship. And I want to let you guys know that Jason surrounded himself with a great team, and he's got a, a great staff over at Kuyu. And yes, losing the founder, losing the president, you know, Jason was a huge part of. Of, of the success at Kuyu, but he does have a phenomenal team. Uh, the team is rallying. I was over there for the funeral and was able to talk with a lot of the employees and a lot of the staff at Kuyu, and they are rallying. They are going to uh, help Jason's legacy live on, and I think they're going to do a phenomenal job. So uh, I appreciate all of you guys' support, the Kuyu Nation support of Kuyu, and I want to thank Kuyu for their sponsorship of the podcast, you can go to KUIU.com and check uh, out all of the different products there. 
And I also want to thank GoHunt.com. Cody Nelson, who is the glassing guru and the optics authority, is the new optics manager at GoHunt.com gear shop. You can call Cody directly for info sales at 702-847-8747, extension 2, or email Cody at optics, O-P-T-I-C-S, at GoHunt.com. Uh, Cody has promised me that he's going to take care of the J. Scott Outdoors listeners, so make sure to give Cody a call if you have any optics needs, whether it's spotting scopes, binoculars, rifle scopes, tripods, etc. Also, Canyon Coolers. Use the J. Scott promo code to get a 10% off all Canyon Coolers products. Go to CanyonCoolers.com. Canyon coolers.com use the j scott promo code to get 10 percent off all orders guys let's get right to these episodes and i appreciate your support welcome to the j scott outdoors podcast i am on location in dixon california Dixon is home of Kuyu. This is the world headquarters for Kuyu. And I'm here with the founder, Jason Harrison. Jason, how you doing? I'm doing awesome. It's great to finally have you here. Yeah, it's, it was so cool. I got in last night about 5 o'clock and was able to swing by here and, and um, see the world headquarters. And then today it's been so fun because this morning I was able to come and 8.30, and I saw your weekly meeting. That Team you meeting, yeah. yeah it's it was good to have awesome you there. to be there and get to see everybody. But then after that, you had some meetings and stuff. I was able to go through and talk with a bunch of your staff and, um, you know, interview them and uh, get to see what each one of them, you know, we does. We have some great people here. Yeah, I mean, it was, I, I, I talked with Stephanie in the returns department, and she was telling me about, you know, receiving packages from North Bay, and she's been working, it'll be four years in yep. July, and she handles refunds and price adjustments, and I talked with uh, Tim, who works, you know, directly with Regina yep. and customer service sales and manager and operations department and he wears you know it seems like everybody in that department wears multiple hats everybody's helping each other and mari uh sales service uh she works in the guides and outfitter program uh she handles the newsletter she's kind of a jack of all trades a couple years of course yeah she's uh, awesome employee and then uh mark from uh, Vacaville, you know, customer service rep, uh, handles a lot of the Canada orders. Mark's awesome. Yeah. And we had a funny story about him. He, he works with Dallas who Dallas is doing the Kuyu, um, Canada. He does. Yep. And, um, uh, then there's, uh, Helena service emails, you know, she covers a variety of emails. She was second in your sales team. Uh, she handles a hundred to 200 emails. I know. Um, uh, amazing. And Danny and Ellie uh, work with Brendan and the guides and outfitters. They've been they do such a great job. Too. And then uh, Jordan uh, works with sometimes there's lost packages. She does all the, yeah, the troubled shipments and just the challenging situations that can happen for a customer. We, we want to solve those things quickly. She's so good about that. Yeah. And then Anthony, man, what a, what an energetic guy and yep. seemed a very product knowledge. Uh, he's, he's, he's a student, of, yeah, student, student of the game, just seemed 100%. like an awesome guy. And, you know, uh, Jade and, and, and then Todd, uh, Harney took yep. me, 
from here, we drove in the Kuyu van and we drove over to the warehouse. Yep, um, North Bay. And I took some photos and videos of, I couldn't believe it. I mean, from the bottom all the way to the top is boxes. And, yeah, I and, think we're in like 25 or 30,000 square feet now. Row after row after row. And I was, you know, walking through, taking pictures and, you know, here's, here's, uh, you know, uh, Yukon, here's, here's, uh, here's, uh, backpacks. I took like five, six hundred, <laughs> uh, pictures of, of pack frames. Yep. You know, and, and then he goes, that's not, and I go, what? And he goes, look, and there was like another 2,500 of, I'm like, oh yep. my goodness. Isn't it amazing? Yeah. I mean, and to think all that's come in less than six years. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I don't know if you, if Debbie or any of those people ever know they showed you where we started. No, I didn't see but that. It's mind blowing for me. I mean, we literally had one tiny desk station and we had literally a rack that was something you could almost fit in your garage. That was Kuyu six years ago. Yeah. And that, and to see what it is now and to walk in there and see all the different stations, the mass amount of people that we employ there and watch what they do and how many packages they're shipping out every day is just the most, I mean, talk about high energy for me to walk in there and see that just like, wow, look at all of this in such a short period of time, chasing this crazy dream that I had for Kuya to see it come to this today is like. I got to pinch myself when I see it. It is the coolest thing ever, Jay. Well, it's been cool to watch from afar, you know, watching your success. And that, that kind of leads to my first question. You know, as fast as Kuyu has grown, uh, obviously the passion that you have for hunting is the driver behind that. And I, I want to kind of go back to uh, the formulation of Kuyu and what is the driving factor for creating the products that you do for Kuyu, what what is what is the backbone? What is the driving force? Well, I mean, the, the driving force behind creating Kuyu the way I did, having built my previous brand, and was I was just always frustrated that I was, that I couldn't make the best products. That the price points on the fabrics I'm using now I couldn't use. I mean, they're just Why? four to five times more expensive. Okay. I mean, the Japanese fabrics from Toy that we use are amazing. I was introduced to them from a designer, Richard Sibrell from Patagonia, who was introduced from introduced to by Gore when they uh, invested in in Sitka. And Richard and I work closely together on some of the products that they still are using now. And and he's the one that introduced me to Toy at outdoor retailer and said, took me through all their fabrics and explained explained to me why Tori is so amazing. It's the patents around um, how their fabrics stretch and, and recover. They call it Prime Flex. And some of the different materials and membranes and DWRs and everything they did was the best in the world. And as Richard said, he's all, Jason, only problem with Tori, no, you can't afford to take this product to market. I mean, you're going to find it in ski jackets and pants that are two to $3,000. And that's really the only place Tori existed prior to Kuyu. But, um, and watching the retail model restrict me and and the deficiencies and lack of value they're adding at the time when I when everything happened at Sitka and I exited you know that's what I was left frustrated with that experience and the desire to make product out of Tori the, the, my vision for a carbon fiber pack frame that I knew I couldn't make because of price and the retailers wouldn't carry it or sell it that I had to really just change everything with this business to do that and I always felt like if I could focus on making the world's greatest product, cutting no corners. And because of that, share it with everybody and explain to them everything I knew about 
the fabrics, the materials, the products, why we're making it this way, what a great factory looks like versus you know, you know low-cost factories and, and share all that experience, all that knowledge that I was, that I was learning and had learned um, and build the best of the best, this consumer direct idea may work. Um, the biggest concern I had, as we've talked about in the past, is with a consumer direct business, you do a grand opening on your website, turn on the lights, website goes up, who's going to know about you, right? And who's going to trust you? Who's going to believe in what you're doing to buy that first product? And if that first product's great, then hopefully that person will tell somebody else about it. And that's a big challenge. And, and in, in business today, if you read anything and in, in follow anything to do with business, um, you're, ta- you know, you're seeing reports every single day of retailers either closing stores or filing bankruptcy. In Gander Mountain, yeah. hunting retailers, 162 changes filed ch- chapter 11. Yeah. Sports Authority. I mean. Sports Authority's gone. I mean, they're all in trouble. Cabela's needing to be purchased by Bass Pro. That's falling apart because rumor is Bass Pro didn't hit their... Um, we're down in revenue last year, so the banks don't want to lend to make that purchase happen. That whole model's collapsing. Um, I saw it back in 08. I just felt like there, there was not enough value added by the retailer any longer, that, that there was something inherently wrong. My gut just told me that. And I didn't go direct be- necessarily because I felt like it was in collapse, but just felt like there wasn't enough value added, was, and the customer was paying too much for too little. And that um, if I went directly to the customer and made the best product in the world, that I would win over time. What I didn't quite anticipate is it would quite, you know, it would go this quickly that we'd have this much success so quickly because you know, business experts that looked at my business plan and people I talked to about potentially funding this dream for Kuyu, you know, also the same thing. Interesting idea. You're going to go out of business before you get enough customers. Um, but I, you know, I circumvented that by starting blogging about the company 18 months before I ever launched. And yeah, I can remember soul. watching videos where you were actually researching products and you were going to different places yep. and, and you were being very transparent about it. Which to Once me, a week I posted a blog post for 18 months. Yeah, and but but prior to launch, from yeah. my perspective, watching it, it's like okay, he he founded Sitka, and now he's. Um, you know, he's the founder of Kuyu and he's being so transparent about it. From my perspective, looking and watching you do all of that, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, if there was somebody else out there, they could, he's being so transparent, yeah. they could just copy what I he's doing. Heard a, I heard it from and, a lot of people. And, and you know, aren't this, you worried about it? Is this guy crazy for being so yep. transparent? But in reality, what happened is you gained the trust of your customer. Because you were willing to give the information out there and not worry about the the other guy. You were only concerned with what you were going to do. And what was best for the customer. What was best for that product for the customer. And I knew also, because one thing I didn't announce early on was I was going to go consumer direct. All I did was talk about what great fabrics are, what good design is, what great products are my vision for products in engaging with the customer around that and listen to them and answering questions. I answered every single question on the blog for a year and a half before we launched. And I used to sit up at night till like two in the morning. My wife and Kirsten would be like, Jason, you're nuts. I'm like, every single person asks questions is important that I answer it right now. And it still is. And, uh, but I, what I did know is the materials and fabrics I was going to use, no one could afford to use them and sell at retail. So I knew even though I was going to lay everything out, of exactly what I was doing, what I was buying, and why nobody can compete with with me that was currently in business that sold at retail. You couldn't do it, right? And I knew that, and so I used that to my advantage. 
And that's why I tore, you know, pulled the curtains back on the entire industry. I mean, I talked about what the realities were that everybody else was buying and using is these source Taiwanese fabrics they're putting fancy names on, which were $4 junk with no testing, um, with no warranty, with, with no history behind those fabrics. You could take a fabric and have it produced in a matter of weeks in Taiwan and make it into a product and sell it. But you just don't know what the longevity of that fabric is. Right. That's why you see fabrics pill. You see why you see seams tearing. There's no testing or reliability in those fabrics. Just the opposite with what I buy from Tori. I mean, the Japanese are meticulous about every detail that goes in their fabrics, down to the raw material procurement. They have standards that are so freaking high, it's unbelievable. You know, I, I was privileged today to get to witness you in a meeting with, with Tori. A lot of them here. <laughs> we had the, like we this had, room was full for yeah. sure, and but it was really neat to see them bring. First, it was really neat to see them come with the respect level that they did to yep. you, and and you respecting them back. And it just was neat to watch from a distance, you know, how everything was going on. But to see the amount of detail that you and your staff, as well as Tori and their staff, trying to come in congruent together to help you know make decisions on future products yep. and materials um you know that the amount of forethought that that you've put into kuyu gear i believe i'm going to ask you what is the reasoning for wanting to create such good stuff i think it's because you want to use it. it it's because i want to use it and I'm always trying to improve what we have. I'm always looking for a better way to make something, something that's, and I, I tagged the line ultralight partly because I knew the patents that Tori has on their fabrics. They can stretch and cover that elastic. And we, and, and as I've shared on the blog and we talk about a lot here, elastic's terrible. I mean, it's heavy, holds moisture. It's also wears out over time and is a really big negative and something that you're going to take in the mountains. And I knew they had advantage in that. We took four pounds out of the layering system, if you're comparing ours to what I built at Sitka when we launched, um, and that was purely elastic, and we got a better performing product that weighed less. Um, but it's it's that never-ending desire to continually look for new innovations that can make our products lighter, better, perform better, or solve a problem that we can't currently solve because of a new material or a new concept, right? And, and it's just that part of it, fascinates me yeah. i absolutely love it like You're those moves today is like sitting down with those new fabric innovations and this is stuff that i mean really this relationship has gotten so good with tori we're now their largest customer globally i have direct access to their entire development team all their scientists and we are sitting together as a group now working to solve the smallest problems now we're facing in the mountains and continue to evolve and push our products further than ever before and what you saw today i mean that's future product for us and it's so far advanced that everybody else is in the world i mean this is like it, it's this is like the cutting edge stuff yeah. and we get and the cool thing is we get it first yeah tori comes to us i mean this is stuff we will take to market before anybody else we will introduce those advancements and we don't ever stop i mean that's, we can find a better it. way to move, make a product it's like today they introduced us the new dwr treatment yeah. it's going on our products as soon as possible and that's the thing that that I want to make a point of that I've been able to see, um, you know, wearing the Kuyu gear for as long as I have is I've been able to see you not settle. F you're, you're constantly wanting to make the product better. 
continually. And I think it would be very easy for someone in your position that has built a company l- like this and, and kind of sit back and rest on your successes. But what I see from you is actually the opposite. I see someone that is constantly willing to say, you know what, this product's great, but I can make it better and continue to strive to make each piece of your gear yep. better. And this business model allows me to do it really fast. You know, if you had, if you were in a retail market, you bring a product out, that needs to be in the retail, that retail market for a certain period of time where the buyers go ballistic. They want it, they don't want to have to change out a new SKU. They don't want to have to discount and close out inventory they have that they're carrying over. So that stagnates innovation. Us, I can recreate, like our packs are new every year. We have new innovation in our packs every year. Every single year, we've made improvements to our entire pack line. We bring it as, as the new, like we'll have the new seven, 2017, 2017 packs coming out this spring. Only because we're, I'm just relentless on testing. That's why I go on sheep hunts every year. Finding deficiencies in our product, going back to t- people like Tori, going back to guys on our development team like Sean, going to our carbon fiber suppliers and finding ways to make our stuff even better in those extreme conditions or situations that we may find still performs really well, but can we make it even better? Can we make it lighter? Can we put a package together that's better for our customers? And that's just my fanaticism for product. And it's just curiosity of how do we make it better? How do we improve these things? And what technologies are out there to do that? And we're always searching. I mean... I'm always searching for new new ideas, new concepts, new developments, new fabrics and materials. I'm going on Monday to this place called Bolt Fabrics. They may, they've figured out how to harness DNA from spiders to make fabric. Now it's not commercialized yet. They don't they couldn't produce it on mass in a mass production level. But I want to be on the ground floor of understanding what they're doing because if there's a company out there going to take it to market fast, it's us if we can find an application for it. But it's that kind of curiosity that just drives me. It's super fun. But it also stems back to your passion for the business. You you, you alluded to it just a second ago is you, you sheep hunt. Yep. Why specifically in your mind is sheep hunting kind of the driver of what you do? Yeah, and it's you know it's really northern sheep hunting that is the driver. I mean, I I love all sheep hunting, but the northern hunts are just you know they're they're really remote places, they're really harsh conditions, and you truly get to test your mind, body, soul, yourself as a hunter and as a person, and and you know we have a tagline now called the mountains are relentless. I mean, they truly are, especially in those situations. I mean, you never freaking get a break. It seems like in the mountains if if the sun comes up and gets warm, the, the mosquitoes come out. If it's if it's cold and wet, it's really wet and really cold. And it's those conditions and challenges that we face up there that, you know, truly test your gear. And you're going to find a deficiency or limitation on your gear. You're going to find solutions to those problems that you're facing that you may never find unless you go on a sheep hunt. I mean, you have to go. I have to put boots on the ground every single year with uh, with new products, new product concepts, prototypes, and test it in those situations so that I know when our customers get it, I personally put it through the paces, put it in the worst conditions I can possibly put it in, and just make sure that they can rely on what we take to market. That's critical. If you don't go sheep hunting and you say your stuff's for sheep hunting, how do you know? Right. You're just guessing. Yeah. It's like, um, you know, the 23-year-old life coach situation <laughs> where... <laughs> <laughs> that is hilarious. I've seen that before, right? It's living in his mom's basement. Yeah. And, and he's writing books on, you know, yeah. life. And... 
so what you're saying is you want to you want to make the best gear possible. You want to use the best materials, the best ingredients in 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 all of the gear, but you also a step further from that, you personally want to test each piece of gear so that when you put it out to the marketplace and if anybody were to come up to you at a trade show or whatever and say, what about this? You can say, I used it, I tested it, I Absolutely. designed it, and I stand behind the, it. It's just the truth, yeah. right? And I've put myself in some crazy situations. Some really, I mean, we. I went on a trip, float trip with Lance Kronberger up in Alaska for a grizzly bear float. It's a 100-mile float just off the Bering Sea north of Uniclid. I mean, talk about the middle of nowhere. And it was in October, and we're sitting in the hangar before we flew in and Lance goes, we got a polar vortex dropping down on the weather report. We could get temperatures that are going to drop below zero. It ended up dropping 20 below zero at night. Never got a high above 10. We had to float 100 miles down that river. For nine days, we were stuck in that weather. Racing the river, it was freezing. We were, I think you've seen the pictures mm-hmm. of it. I mean, portaging boats and breaking ice. All the bears went to hibernation. It was a literally 100-mile survival race. Um and when people ask about my gear, you know, how what, what kind of conditions can this go down to weather-wise? I'm like, I can personally say I've had it minus 20 at night, highs of 10s for 10 straight days. And guess what? It worked great. Yeah. And unless I've had those experiences, I don't know. And I can't tell people with confidence and know that, that they are in those same situations that it's going to deliver for them. And it's super important to me. I don't want a customer... Uh, to have a disappointment or a product or product failure because we haven't tested those situations. We right. have to. It's critical. It seems as though the industry, there is a level of hypocrisy in, in the industry a little bit. And I think that's something that I've always admired about you and your staff uh, is that you do test the gear and put it through all of, you know, you yep. run it through the harshest of, harshest of conditions. And quite honestly, I mean, you're the type of guy when you look outside and you're, you know, you're looking out your tent and it's big clouds coming over. You're like, great, good day to test gear. It you is. Know? Whereas most people would be like, oh man, this big awful. flat clouds coming over. And oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, like a, a great example of testing a product in a situation I probably shouldn't have is our our Ultra Star tent, the one man tent. I took it on a BC stone sheep hunt off of the glaciers, and so we were super exposed up way up high on some glaciers, which gives you no protection. And we're on this glacial moraine because it's only a place to camp, and we just got like for five six days in a row got pounded by storms. And I had that tent. A, a, a couple nights in a row, we got just these huge winds, and one night in particular it got really bad to the point where, at like four in the morning, I'm sitting up in my tent, leaning against the back wall because I'm f- convinced that tent's going to get blown to pieces and we're going to blown off the mountain. And uh, and it survived, and it performed amazingly well beyond anything I ever designed that tent for. And that gave me really big confidence. This was this prototype when we took it to market. Like, yeah, it's an ultralight shelter. Um, it's a single wall. It's made for summer hunts. But guess what? It can perform in some crazy conditions. This is the craziest weather condition I've ever been in. I mean, I was seriously fearful of what was going to happen uh, with that product, those conditions, and, and it performed. It was. I mean, it's that type of situations that I love to find the limits and find the limits of the product if there is some, or or have the confidence to know that it just went through that and it's 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 awesome. Sure, you know. I want to ask you, you know, today being here at uh, Kuyu headquarters and getting to meet a lot of your staff, 
there's a whole level that I see here in Dixon, California. Population, I think I saw a sign, 16,000. They're not very big. And, I mean, there's 40-some people or more that I've seen that it's job creation here in the U.S. Yep. It's job creation in your home state, in your hometown. Yep. What does that mean to you? <laughs> it's It means a lot. And it's it's... You know, it's it's a, it's a great feeling, and it really is for uh, in a couple of different ways for employees. One is, it's great to be able to give these people jobs, and it's great for me to give them not just a job, but something and a place to work that is really fun, that's high energy, that is a business that is setting new standards for how to do how to build a company today, and a business that is going to grow to be a global globally recognized iconic brand over time. And these people are are part of this movement in business and part of Kuyu. And to know what's ahead for them, they can't necessarily see it and have my joy of sitting here with these people. A lot of them are, they, most of our team started at customer service level. I mean, mm-hmm. from basics, Regina started with folding t-shirts in the showroom. She's running customer service now. She does an amazing job. Um, we have a lot of stories like that. Homegrown talent. I love homegrown talent. We've hired people with great resumes. They don't always fit in with my management style. And to know where this business is heading and to be able to give these people an amazing job. We pay really well. It's really fun to work here. And to see their passion for my dream and my love for this business and love for hunting pull through our staff. And it's what's kind of built this unique following for Kuyu. You know, we talk about the why of this business. I don't know if, if you watched Simon Sinek. And he talks about the why and why, how great leaders inspire people. And it's not, it's it's them talking about what they believe and what they love, and what their passion is. And that's what we built here. We've we've got a culture here of people that overachieve every single day because they love what they do. They love Kuyu and they love supporting my dream and my passion. And and um. You know, I great bring up great examples. Sean and product development. I brought this up to the team that I mean, this love is so easy to see. You may not recognize it, but Sean measures pack straps down to the eighth of an inch in every single product. The level of detail he he works on on our products. I've never asked him to do it. He does it because he loves it. Blaze, do a corporate video. He comes out with what I dream about. If you've seen it, it mean it gives me goosebumps and tears when I watch it. Right. Yeah. yeah. Melissa, with the things she does, just it goes down the, to everybody here, is and it's and it's contagious. It is, contagious. and you just get the sense of energy here. We're doing big things. Oh man, I'm fired up just being here. I, right, you can feel yeah, it. Yeah, I've only been here for you know twelve hours, and I'm ex- just fired up. I mean, about at night I got to kick people out of here. Yeah, you know, I mean, it's it it is an amazing thing and culture that we built here. It's a family. We all work together. We all wear a bunch of different hats, like you noticed. Everybody's in it together, and yeah. nobody's in it for themselves. And that's I, so cool. I stopped and talked and took notes and talked with a lot of different people, and I said, "What is it like working for Jason?" And they said, "He's easy to follow." <laughs> I heard <laughs> that's that awesome. several times. He's easy to follow, and. That's a huge I, compliment. I, I've never I, heard that before. Honestly, I would think that's the biggest compliment awesome. you could get because here you are as a leader. I asked, you ever seen him lose his cool? One person said, I saw him lose his cool one time. And it was because we, as as a staff at one of the trade shows, left the booth and only left two people there because they were 
booth. It was some raffle or something. For a sheep tags, yeah. And left the booth, and Jason was upset because the customers were not going to get the attention that they should with a full staff booth. <laughs> and that was the only time, the only time I, I talk, can remember. talked to your staff that they said, he lost it then, but he was in the right. Yeah. And that that was something that was important to him as the customer. Every single thing we do here, I say, we ha- this, built, this brand was built from day one for the customer. Everything we do, every decision we make has to be what's best for the customer here or you can't work here. It's right. never what's best for you. It's never what's best for me. Product decisions, how we service the customer, how we handle customers when they're unhappy with the product. We're super liberal. I never want to lose a customer because they're unhappy with the product. If right. it doesn't perform the way they think they should, even if they misuse it or had a misunderstanding of how it should perform, take care of them. Right. Customers are livelihood, right? And they deserve it. They're so poorly treated today as consumers, it, it's, it's unbelievable. I just look at businesses that service customers that way and just think, how do you survive? You know, yeah. I never, we get a customer here. Our goal is to never, ever lose that customer. We want them forever. We want to wrap our arms around. We want that family atmosphere spread to our customer base. It's only because I truly care, not because I want to make more money. Right. Well, you also are smart enough to know that if you care about each and, each and every individual person, the money will come. It's not about it's, the money. It's about say it, it every day. It's a You're customer exactly service right. business. I, you know, I I, I kind of treat my podcast the same way. In the fact, I know that you do. You do. I, it's it's a, it's. I really get messages and emails and direct messages on Instagram, and for me, it's super important that each and every person gets a response. Yep, and they get a thoughtful response, not just a you know, you know, just a totally. one line, you know just a random, you know, this is how I'm going to respond, but a personalized response. And And it's, I say, thanks for supporting my podcast. Thank you for taking the time to send me a question. Thank you for sending me, uh, taking your time to send me a comment. Thanks for sending me a concern. Like you're taking time out of your day to send me a message. And I appreciate that. And it truly is one person at a time. And that's, you know, one of the reasons. But why do you do it? I do it because I care what they, I want them to, to get the most they can out of the podcast. And I know it's important for building what I'm doing to have their support. Without each and every one of them, I wouldn't have the cumulative support that I do. Of course. So it's, it's, it's and everything. It is. And I, you know, we, I study business and I'm fascinated with brands and brand building and business. Um, and I watch a lot, and I get a lot of influence from other businesses. I learn a lot from other businesses, how they do things. And I just watch so many businesses do it for the money and the detachment they have from what's right for their customer. And you know, there's a lot of decisions in this business I could have made to make a lot more money than I've made to date, a lot more. We could be a lot bigger. My life could have been a lot easier the last five years. But I felt like for this brand – what I want to do is what was best for the customer. And I, and like you said, if we focus on the little details to provide the best experience, the best product, the best service, every single day, the big things will come. And I challenge our team. We're getting big. We're getting really big, um, really fast. And as I sit down with the management team, we cannot forget what got us here, and that's the customer mm-hmm. in every aspect of this business. Second we do... We become average, mm-hmm. become just like everybody else. It's never been about the money. It's been about the customer. Mm-hmm. And that's why I built the business model. I, it's why I gave the retail market back to our customers. I could have added a lot more margin to my products. I didn't. 
We, we literally sell our products at what I tell to Cabela's today. Yeah. And I've had, you know, people from the outside, professional investors look at our business. They're like, why don't you charge the customer more? I said, that's just not what I believe. I believe the customer deserves that retail market back. They're smarter than the retailers are anyways. They found my product. They deserve it. Yeah. I make enough money with, with the standard margin in our products. Don't you think it's interesting how other brands have kind of gone to this direct-to-consumer model in talking about global brands in all sorts of business, not yep. even in the outdoor business, just... You're seeing across. They're the hot things in the in the retail market right, right now. And I, it seems like Kuyu was like at the very forefront. Yep. And now you're seeing the you the know, trend the, is to build trend. consumer direct. And how do you do it? Right. And I study a lot of them, and our philosophy still is unmatched. Most of them are using it to either give them a huge price savings, so they're going on instead of a like Warby Parker is a great example. They make prescription eyewear. I don't know if you know about that brand. And they sell them direct. And Luxottica is the big dominant player in, in that business. And they charge an exorbitant amount for the frames. Well, what we said, we're going to design our own frames, bypass Luxottica, sell it direct to the customer, and we're going to make glasses really inexpensive. So they're $100 glasses. Problem with them, they're $100 glasses. So they got deficiencies in quality and performance. And they're limited on the styles and designs. And that's kind of their value added to the customer. And it's a, good, it's a choice. The problem is when someone comes out with a $99 pair of prescription sunglasses, what value have you truly added? What what have you really done for that customer, right? Dollar Shave Club, 99 Cent Shave Club is another argument, right? And this direct-to-consumer idea, they're trying to take advantage of trying to figure it out. I did it just so I can make the world's greatest product and gave the retail market back to the customer. So we're adding a lot of value in a lot of ways as far as just amazing product, product that is unmatched before in the collection of materials we put together with it, and then giving it to the customer at, a, at such an amazing price for what they're getting. Yeah. And that's allowed me to build this, unlike any other consumer direct brand with hardly any money to market. I've relied on the customer selling it for us. And that's truly, I believe, the correct way to build it. It's a slower way to build it. It'd been a lot easier for me to go raise a, bu- a lot more money at the beginning. To be able to house a lot more inventory. House more inventory, a lot more marketing, and and then worry about profit once we get to a huge scale. And that's what most do. I built it the slow way, the hard way, the organic way. Great product, transparency, and one building trust. One person at a time. One way. person at a time. Word of mouth marketing. And I've to get to this point, we've done it with hardly any money which has not really been done before in this type of business. That brings up something I wanted to kind of talk to you or ask you about. In the industry, from my perspective, what I see out in the industry is a little bit of hypocrisy because there is a whole conglomerate of companies that are willing to pay crazy amounts of money to people to use their products and you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars to say that, you know, this, this optic or, you know, this, um, you know, this nutritional supplement or this, that, or the other, or this tree stand or this bow and arrow, you know, this arrow is the best or what have you. And then you take Kuyu who doesn't have a pro staff. They don't pay people to, to outsource. I mean, they don't outsource their credibility. They don't pay. Yep. They don't pay people. <laughs> like I see it over and over, and someone will be saying, "Oh, this is the best, you know, binocular." And it's like, really? Yeah, this well, is the I best mean, binocular. Or yeah. how much are you getting paid? Oh, I know. It's, isn't it crazy though? I mean, 
one year they're telling you first light's the best, and next year they're telling sick is the best. What's what is it? Right. I mean, was it is it truly this one or is it this one? Is it you know you got guys you know promoting Swallow, and the next year they're promoting Nikon, and it's like obviously money will buy anything. It's right? in essence like saying Ford is number one, and the next year they're saying Chevy is number one, and the next year they're saying Dodge, Dodge is number one. Because these companies then, wrote me the bigger paychecks, and they tell you whatever you is number whatever one. Makes me money. Yeah, no, it's but it's then ridiculous. at that point hasn't. There have been a total loss of credibility, Tons. not only with those individuals, but it almost gives a loss of credibility to the whole industry. It has. Well, and I think the consumer is way smarter than that today. And I, I think I've proven it with this business model. They, you know who you trust? You trust Dar. Mm-hmm. You trust your other buddies that hunt mm-hmm. and are really into product and gear that have used it. That's how word is spread about product today. That's where the trust is. And we can measure it. As a consumer direct brand, I know what some of these marketing initiatives that other brands are doing, and I know they don't work because we can try something, and we know instantaneously of whether it's driving sales because I can watch every single sale come in. Those brands that sell at retail have no idea what works. They throw everything up there against the wall. The retailer sells a product to the customer. They don't know what works. I've talked to them. I've talked to the, some of the biggest brand names out there, CEOs of it, talked to their heads of marketing. These are the things we do, and I'm looking at it going, wow, that's a waste of money. Do you realize none of that works? Why don't you just put it back into better product? Yeah. Because that's what wins. The best, absolute best product in the world will win. And the customer will tell people faster today than ever. They'll learn about it faster than ever. And social media word makes, of mouth, those, yeah. makes the word of mouth marketing thing happen exponentially overnight. I mean, we've turned into a globally recognized brand in less than six years, all through word of mouth, all through product, none of it through advertising, none of it through paid spokespeople. And I think... I think another thing that really worked out with the timing of, of, of your launch and your direct-to-consumer model is exactly that in, in the, the, the tra- transparency and the way you did it, but I think also with the evolution of social media. Yep. And let's face it, it's a thing called the Internet. <laughs> it's an amazing thing, isn't and, it? And then there was you know, people, I've still people here say, you know, or I hear people say, Oh, well, it's social media. It doesn't really matter. Well, guess really? what? The way people are communicating these days is through social media. And phones. And t- I mean, it's... Mobile. T- it, it is. And I st- we study it religiously because we live and breathe by it and the success of it as well. And really what we're competing for today is time. I mean, time is, is the most valuable commodity of people today, especially with the phone, the, the smartphones. You yeah. never get a break. People's attention and time. Do you enjoy getting a phone call when you get a text? No. I'd we rather don't. get a text. I'd rather get a text. Yeah. You know why? Because then it's up to you when you get to respond. You're not getting, people don't like to be interrupted anymore. But they want to decide when they get the information. They want to decide when they return a message on a text. They don't want to be interrupted, right? And interruption marketing is totally dead. It pisses people off. It doesn't work. People don't want it. Right. And we get to see the results of it directly because we can watch what we do. And it's up to the consumer. Everything's up to the consumer today. They own their experience, their day, their time. Down the to market the dictates, yes. Absolutely. Yeah. But these old these brands that haven't figured that out, I watch what they do and 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 they're just they there's totally missing marketing today, which is all about the customer and all about their time. I think Kuyu's done a great job with managing their social, your social Thank media you. and being able to, you know, I follow you 
Kuyu official on Instagram. I also follow you on your personal page, and I think it's a great way for people to see not only your stance, you know, your business stance, but get to see some of your personal stuff sure. with your kids and you know your own personal hunts and some of the things you do, and it just adds a whole nother layer of transparency to me where you are interacting with the people yep. on your Instagram account. I mean, who I love Instagram now. Who mm-hmm. else? Who else is, you know, having daily conversations and responding to people on social media? Well, the people that are successful are doing it, but the old <laughs> Not school, all of them. That's what I'm saying. Yep. And but I think it 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 shows where you're different. And I think even from President Trump, you know, people have have been amazing have, to watch him do what he's done. Yeah, and bypass I, the media, go directly to yeah. the people. And he's you know they've he's been getting criticism for you know making tweets and going on Twitter. Well, whether you're a Republican, a Democrat, or whatever, you have to I think step back and say you know what, here's a president who's connecting directly, talking directly with the people. He's not going through a a, a media source yep. to then filter his information. Yep. It's his direct thoughts. Whether you like the thoughts or don't like the yep. thoughts, you do have to respect the fact that he's going directly to the people, I think. It's everything today. You gotta go you have to connect with the people. And you have to talk about what you believe and then the people then can decide to then you're gonna attract the people that believe what you believe. You and the people can decide whether they believe you or not. And trust, transparency, honesty, all that goes so so far today and social media makes it you know, so granular, you can learn about, you know, my life and what my days are like and what things I'm doing. You know, I think when we look at social media here is, and how I look at it is, and what's so great about it today, the customer can decide how deep of dive they want to drive into a brand, right? And, and we talk about it here. If they want to know a little bit about the brand and get a post once a week, it's our blog. If they want a deeper dive, it's Facebook. They're going to get, you know, five to seven posts a week, maybe one once a day. Kuyu uh, Instagram, they're going to get three to four a day. They want to dive deeper into the brand. They can follow me and learn more about what I do and the inner workings of my of my day-to-day and what I do in my life. And it gives them the opportunity to engage the brand that they choose to engage in the brand versus interruption marketing, which forces it on them. Mm-hmm. And people don't want to spend the time to be interrupted anymore. It pisses them off. Yeah, I agree. Great time to be in business. I tell you, it's, I mean, for... Where we are positioned as a brand right now, it's like we have the whole world in our hands. You know, with the failings of retail, the brands in retail all are down in revenue and we're growing like crazy. And I feel so fortunate to have figured out how important it is to connect with the customer, listen to the customer about every aspect of their experience and on products we're in development to know what they want and to communicate with them. It's the future. If you if brands that haven't figured that out yet are all in trouble, and they, and they just and a lot of them right now they're so stuck in the old way they just don't ha- they have no clue how to do that and yeah, how and, powerful it is. And, and the crazy thing is is you can connect directly with your customer with less money now than you've ever it's been free. able to. It's free. It's called it's the a lot internet. Of <laughs> a lot of work, but it's free and right. it's powerful, right. and it's meaningful, and it's what customers are trusting today. And thank God for it. I mean, it's we. St- I started this business in '09 with a blog. I mean, this is before anyone, even social media, was even a word. I think, and I didn't know what it was going to do. But I tell you what, I learned a lot. And then the progression of it with, you know, Facebook and Instagram, and now Snapchat and all these other aspects of it. It's, it's. I just feel so fortunate to have built this business through that because it's 
it's the future business. It's today's business. And those that haven't figured it out are all way behind the eight ball. Thank God for me. <laughs> you know, I feel, I really get, feel very fortunate to be in the position we're in. Absolutely. The world tour. Yeah. You guys are going to be have, awesome. You're going to have your garage sale here. It's going to uh, kick off the world tour. In May, I garage sale. Yeah. And then kick it off. Tell me about the world tour. What is it going to be and why? So I don't know if you saw the renderings in Pat's office, but it's an 18, it's a semi truck with a 18 wheel trailer on the back. It will turn into a 900 square foot pop up showroom. So the sides pop out and it has all the merchandising inside of it, all of our full product line. So, and all the sizes and it'll open up. We'll have a big awning out the outside and we are going to hit 27 cities starting May 20th. I think we finished it towards the end of November. It's going to be a pretty much a Western swing of the United States. We call it a world tour because that's where it's headed eventually. And I think we go as far east as Kansas city and I think Houston, Texas is the furthest east down and kind of down in the South. And we're going to make stops every weekend. We will have a three-day stop in a different city, and we'll hold a Kuyu event there. Um, obviously, people will be able to come in, try on all the product, learn about the products, learn about what makes us special. We'll do clinics and, and gear clinics and pack clinics and how to prepare prepare for, for hunts and gear experts to help people get set up on gear lists. And we'll be showing some of our films from our our uh, film festival that come out this should come out shortly. This has been a huge success on year two. It's amazing, and created a really cool event around Kuyu. And we'll be using our existing customer base in those markets to help tell friends and bring friends there as well. And reaching out to the, lo- the local conservation organizations to come and, and bring their members to help support it. And what I'm really excited about Jay is, you know, we've we've seen it. We do the and you've seen it. We do the consumer trade shows like SCI or wild sheep and this and the amount of enthusiasm amount of people jammed in our booth for four days and also when i've in working those booths to watch somebody come into kuyu for the first time and say i kind of heard about it you know what's the difference between you and this brand or you and this brand and, and to be able to show them and hand them a product have them touch it and feel it and, and get it and then make a huge order and then become a lifelong customer of kuyu that's the experience i'm really excited about because there's a lot of people that have never touched and felt our product that want to, they haven't ordered, that we're going to be able to give them the full Kuyu experience that we can give them at a trade show. So just to be clear, this this semi, in essence, is going to have all the gear, all the sizes. So, I mean, they can try on everything. Absolutely. They can touch, feel, everything try there on, is. Load up a pack, carry, carry weight in our packs, take them for test hikes, um, you know, get a full-blown experience of what our product line is, get fully layered up. And we'll help them get totally set up for any hunt they're going to go on. They can get all their sizing down. They can place an order with a promotion. They'll get a discount for ordering it there. It'll be set up like the trade shows. We'll take orders. And we'll do giveaways and drawings and promotions and, you know, thanking customers for coming out and doing some special things that we'll do only at the at the World Tour stops. And I can't wait to see the reaction to it. Plus, the semi-trucks, you should see it. It's beautiful. It's cool. It's all wrapped in Kuyu. And going down the road, the the company we're working through, you know, it's going to get seen by like they ran the math on like twelve million people will see that truck over the next six months. That that's really cool. I I'm I know that that's going to be a big success. Um, where can people find out where the tour yeah. is going? You know, when are you going to release that? So we'll have a lot of information coming soon. We have a whole section of our website dedicated to the world tour with a map. We have live tracking of the truck 
on the map. You'll be able to see where the truck is, where it's going. It'll have the locations, the dates, the times, and uh, it, it's going to be yeah, lots of information on that. We're running ads in all of our in all of the magazines coming up this spring with information on the tour and the locations and dates. And yeah, I'm really excited about it. It's just a, kind of another layer of customer service, bringing the product out to the customer which they've asked for. And instead of doing it through retailers or instead of doing it through us opening stores, this is a great step to taking that product closer to the customer, which I'm really, really fired up about. I know a lot of customers um, ask, are you going to create a women's line? And... I want to know, are you going to create a <laughs> I, to Right now, no. And only and it's not that I don't care about women. I think it's fantastic that women like to hunt. I think it's fantastic that they get out in the field. And there's some amazing women hunters. And, and I've seen a lot of them wearing Kuyu, too. They do. They love the fabrics. They love the feel. They love the performance. I mean, no one, I mean, no one knows apparel better than women. They get what we do. They ask for our product in women's. And we get a lot of requests for it. I've just done a whole, I mean, for me in business, I have to be really smart about what I go into. I've run the math on rolling out a women's line and the amount of skews it would take, the amount of sizes it would take. I mean, it's a, it's just under $2 million investment for Q to go into women's. I can't keep the men's in stock yet. That's been one reason. The other is, you know, I've talked to buyers that, that sell at retail and they carry women's, all the women's products out there for hunting. They don't sell very much of it unless it's on discount. And, They've told me the women's market isn't as big as people are trying to make it out to be or what the data shows the fastest growing segment. The problem is there's not a lot to start with to make it the fastest growing segment. So you add, you know, you go from 5,000 women hunters to 10,000, it doubles, it's the fastest growing segment, but it's just not a big right. customer On a base. grand scheme. The grand scheme of things. And I just have to be really smart about this business right now. Does that mean we'll never go into women's? I'm not going to say it's never. It's just not right now. So for you, it's, it's a business decision. 100%. Yeah. Until I can prove the market's bigger, until I can keep, everything else we're making in stock and service our customer, um, you know, really well with and our inventories. It's again, it's just, I got, it's, and it's, it's not at all that you don't want women wearing cooties. No, you love seeing not. pictures when, when gals have their husbands awesome. in tack pants rolled up or whatever. Yep. It's just a function of to, 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 it's all business. It's all business. Dollars and, and cents. For do- for trying to make Kuyu as healthy as possible, it that is. would not be a good decision. It wouldn't be. Not not for not for this brand today. Although we are running some smaller sizes this year, and we'll continue to do that. And we're also coming out with a youth line. We're hoping to have it out this fall, but I think it's going to end up being spring of 18. And you know, having sizing from kids through youth through smalls, now it's not the fits are going to be perfect for women, but we're going to be able to fit a lot more women in those products. And they, you know, we've had women that buy the bigger size and have it tailored to, to what they need and love it. I noticed there's some guys that are asking for longer inseam length and pants. Is there any talk of having longer inseams? Well, I, all of our pants are cut at 34, as you know. I don't know if you're aware of this, but all of our cuffs I purposely designed in. Instead of just folding our cuff up once and sewing it to create the bottom of the pant, I actually fold it twice, which costs us a little bit more. Taller guys can take that cuff out, you know, undo the undo the stitch line and drop that down and get to just under a 36-inch inseam. Okay. A lot of people don't know about it. We probably don't do a very good job talking about that, but that's what most of our tall guys do. And if they're even taller than that, then they're getting into our gaiters for the, for the, to make up for that patent length. There was a transition from Verde to Verde 2.0. What created that transition? Why did you do it? 
You know, we're never satisfied. <laughs> we're always looking to improve. And, you know, I study our patterns in the field and I study them and how they look and how, um, you know, how, you know, how they're functioning and had just come up with this concept to just evolve Verde 2.0, work with a graphic artist and came up with what it is today and just fell. In, I really wanted to open it up a little bit more, have, you know, larger sections of, of the solid color versus the contrasting lighter colors. I wanted to add gray in. And wanted to add black in to give the contrast a little bit more richness, and that eventually evolved to where Verde 2.0 is. And you've seen it; it's fantastic. beautiful looking. Yes. It's fantastic in the field. It's really versatile, and uh, the response to it's been just absolutely overwhelming. I love it, and the customers do too. Jason, what I hear from you in going to the direct to consumer model was that you were able to actually make ingredients and materials in the product that were actually better than the competition, way better than the competition, and that if you had to give it, if you had to offer it in the retail, the price would be so super high that you would be priced out of that arena. But what you have been left with is being able to go directly to the consumer, your materials and the ingredients in the products are far above the competition yep not even close and it's easy for me to sit here and say that because i've used the product since you started but from your perspective why are the ingredients why are the materials better? great question how are they better sure just on the pricing structure double our prices and that's retail price for us so, so you, in other words, just to be clear, if you're saying $200, it would be 400 retail. So our attack pant is a, what is it? We sell it for $140. It's a $280 hunting pant at retail. Our Yukon jackets, just under 800 bucks. That's retail price for our product. A lot of people, and we probably, I probably do a poor job today of making sure that's really clear. We did it very early on with... The early adopters on the blog, we talked a lot about the, the retail model, yeah, right. how it worked, how markups work, and we have that on the business model, but I don't know that we do a really, really good job today, especially with your customers educating us around this. Take our prices and double them. Our packs are, are $1,000 packs. Our sleeping bags are $1,600 sleeping bags. Just to be clear, that's not the price, but if you That's if I sold to retail. If you sold to retail. We sell at our customers at wholesale prices. Right. We've always done it. That's what that's I think been a big part of our success is the fact that we can deliver such an amazing product at wholesale prices to our customers. To compare it apples to apples to competition, if you're basing off a price, you're you're missing a hundred percent markup on our price to, to understand really where the true price of this thing is if you're gonna compare it on a price basis apples to apples. And that's that's a bit and because of that, it allows me to work with only the best of the best in the world. And through the process of leaving Sitka and launching, uh, launching this brand almost two years, I spent researching and studying materials, factories, finding un- you know, unique craftsmen at what they did down to the smallest details that went into our products. You know, I probably could have launched this brand a year before I did had I not decided to take this route by just sourcing fabrics, putting a product line together and going back out to market. And I could have brought a product line out similar to what 
I produced at Sitka for half their price, but I decided I want to take it up and build the stuff I couldn't build there because of price and to just focus on the details and focus on the materials and continue to innovate uh, with this brand versus just doing a price, you know, price advantage by going direct. And that's a big difference for us. And so uh, Torrey is my favorite example. I mean, I literally built this brand because I knew about Torrey. And I knew about all their advantages. And one of the things about Japanese and how they do everything, I don't know if you know a lot about their culture, but everything is process-driven. Everything is in set up around quality standards that they will never vary from. And because of those quality standards, because of these processes, and because of their culture is really interesting. So, for instance, if they're coming out with a new product, it has to be gone through a process with five different people within Tory before it gets approval to go to market. And, it, and it, they do that for one reason, because the family name is so important. And if any one family name is tied to that product, that's one person that approves it and that product fails, it's a disgrace to the family name. So because of that, five different people have to all go through the same testing process to sign off on a product before it can go to market. Because they don't want one family name to be on it. And because of that, you get this meticulous quality. You get this meticulous craftsmanship. You get these really high standards that never deviated because you got to pass through five people to, to approve it. And that process is what makes Tori so great at what they do with fabrics. And they're also very meticulous about working to continue to improve never resting on what they currently have and always finding ways to, to make stuff lighter, better, um, perform better. And what's so cool for me now is as this business has grown and Kuyu's become their number one customer in the world, I now have access to go to Japan to work with their scientists, to go work with their fabric developers and work with them, you know, really directly and intimately. You saw them, the people here today yeah, it was amazing. and talk to them about, ways to improve our products, ways to solve problems that the laboratories are saying that the fabrics shouldn't have a problem in, but the real world in Alaska in a really bad storm, busting through brush for eight hours, will find that you can't find in the lab. And they're willing to work with us to solve those problems, improve their products, and they're relentless about it. And you saw some of that today. And that relationship is, is one that only comes through a lot of respect and reciprocity and truly not just doing business with them, but it's understanding how to do business within their culture. And it's so different than what we have in America. It's I love it because it's like old school business. And um, the one thing I learned is you got to be really patient. No matter how much you jump up and down, yell and scream, well, that will hurt you doing business with Japanese. They're not going to break their processes and deliver to you deliver something to you faster just because you need it. It's you just have to plan for that, and that's that's a big learning curve because to work with Tori, we have one year lead times on our products. It takes that long for us to take a product order to deliver on average. That that's what we plan for because that's how long the process is take. It's because their quality standards are, are so high they reject so much raw material called grage before they ever get to fabric that it takes that long to produce the raw material to get it approved, to get it to fabric, to get it to market. So some of these materials that we were looking at today that I had the privilege of just sitting and watching were they you awesome? do your work, incredible. Those may be a year away. If I place an order today, we can't plan on having them until, until this time next year. Okay. Now, they may beat that a little bit, but that's how we plan with Tori. Right. But it's not like it just... Let's back up. Tori's not just some fly-by-night company. This is a power... House. It's the best in the world. $20 billion 
Japanese business. Now they're in lots of different things. What's great about Tori is their foundation for their business, where it was founded was they were a chemistry company that, that made chemicals. So that's how they approach everything. And that's why they make things that are so much better than everybody else. It starts from chemistry and works its way, works its way up. What everyone else does, they just try to figure out what Tori's doing and then knock it off in a cheaper way. But they have no process, no no quality standards. They don't have the quality standards. They don't have the foundation for what Tori did to get to where they are. So they're just cheap knockoffs. And Tori is by far the standard of the top of the standard. I mean, it's what they all aspire to be in technical fabrics and, and materials. And it's not just with their fabrics. They also have the most breathable, stretchable membrane out there. They're con- you saw some new membrane mm-hmm. concepts today. Mm-hmm. And those are super cutting edge ideas and concepts that we're looking at today. I mean, never been invented before type of stuff that's pushing the boundaries. Um, and that's the stuff that's really cool that Tori does. Their nanotechnology on, on down feathers. I mean, I've tested all of it. There's Tori, and it sits up really high above the quality standards of everybody else. And uh, it, that for me, that's just the stuff I totally geek out on. I love that stuff. Listening to you tell the story about Tori and how you've taken time and you've had to be patient to build a relationship, to, to build a trust between you and them and them and you, um, is it safe to say the best is still yet to come? Oh, yeah. I mean, it really is. I mean, seems like you've just cracked in. Well, it's, 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 like, been, it's been a process. I mean, what was so cool about Kuyu and Tori? So when I, in 09, when I first came up with the business model and then I first approached Tori, they didn't return any phone calls or emails. They had pretty much given up on the United States. The prices, they had priced themselves out of this market. There were some brands that were still trying to use like an Arcteryx, but they'd gone away from it because of price. The retailers were demanding it. And so here came me along. They'd never produced fabric for a hunting company before. A hunting market knew nothing about it. And they, I literally, I emailed them. I called them. I couldn't get responses. No one would send me sample yardage. Through the factory that I was working through to build the samples, I had a contact in Hong Kong. They put me in touch with that contact. I flew to Hong Kong to do business with Tori for the first time. And he sent us sample fabrics out of the Hong Kong office. The US, U.S. office wouldn't do it. They thought it was a waste of time and money. And so that's how I got started in business with them. And now it's so funny because now we're the largest customer in the world. And they're and I, here. And they're, they're all coming <laughs> here. And like the biggest exec, I mean, we had last month uh, or a couple of weeks ago, we had um, some really high executives for Tori, which is really rare to get them to have a meeting with a client. In fact, it's never happened where they visited a client before. And it's, again, it's this respect thing that they have and seniority, you know, traditional seniority within Japanese business. And now I'm going to Japan next month to go have dinner with them. And it's in my rep at Tore, Aki's been with us for since the beginning. He's like, you know, this has never happened before. They've never had dinner with a client before. And it's really cool for me to like do the right thing, build a business model for Tore, fight to be even become a customer and to take it where we are today and then now to be able to work with the teams there to develop new innovations and technologies to to do and have meaningful relationships with uh, you know the highest executives there to me is like the most it's the most you know it's, it's awesome it's awesome it's it's neat to see all the hard work start to pay off and build it now we can start moving that needle further and further and further and that's what's exciting for me you know that makes me think of something and this question may blindside you. I'm going to ask it anyway. 
it, it seems as though there's a bunch out there that have this why doesn't Kuyu make their product in the United States? And for me, for someone that's been a Kuyu supporter for a long time and really loved the gear and not only loved the gear but loved your approach to the gear and what we've already talked about today, but to know you personally, I feel like that question or people saying why don't you make it in the United States is frustrating to me even though I don't even know a lot about the business because the other brands aren't made in the United States so they're trying to and I say they there's people on social media and such that are trying to single coo you out as well great but why don't you make it in the USA when none of the other brands are making it in the USA Nope, Here you're dealing with very respectable company in Japan, cutting edge technologies, yep. best materials in the world, and then where your product is made compared to some of the other quote unquote competitors. Well, I know where their stuff's made. I know. I, I don't have one product made in the same factories that make their stuff in for a reason. So tell me about that. It's quality. It's reliability. And... And it's There's not made difference. in the USA. No, none of their stuff is. Right. No. So no. I, I, it seems as though there's somewhat of we're, a double for, for whatever reason, we're held to a higher standard, which I appreciate. And I don't know if it's we're held to a higher standard or if it's, you know, people that support the other brands and just, you know, by the way I've gone to, to business and the way I've taken the brand to business, I think when you do things that are different and I think you do things that are Put disruptive. Put a target on yourself. Yeah, you do. And I'm transparent and, and competition. My old business partner may not to be that I'm an egomaniac and it's all about Jason. It's nothing to do with that. It's me wanting to be transparent about everything I do because I believe in what I believe and I want to share it with our customers. I think that builds trust and credibility. And I think it's what is the strength of this brand. And so it's created a target on my back. I'm okay with it. Um, you know, people like to throw things out like, you know, it's Chinese junk. It's made in sweatshops, which is none of that's true. We work only with the best factories in the world because we can afford to. The others can't. I get that. I was there before. And then, um, you know, as far as made in the U.S., and I've, I've gotten this because of my friendship with Trump and my support of Trump through the campaign and my willingness to put use Kuyu as a, as a platform to talk about my relationships with them and why they're great people and why we should vote for his father because they'll support hunting and conservation, which is another conversation. Um, I would love to make it in the United States. In fact, I don't even remember we launched Kuyu in a Vancouver factory. I wanted to make it domestically. I couldn't even make it to start domestically because the factories that I needed to cut and sew the way we cut and sew, to have the equipment to cut and sew the way we cut and sew, to do the, the, the seam taping, you couldn't do it in the United States. Regulations kept the certain types of, of heat set glues that we use in our rain gear you can't do it here in the United States. And so we had to go to Canada to do it. The Canadian uh, sewing um, production facility worked there had six sewing lines. Within the first year, we had a one-year waiting list in our pants and our jackets. People were screaming bloody murder. And I knew I had to go overseas for production. And people say, well, you did it because you got a price advantage. We didn't get a price advantage. Not We absolutely did not. You did we didn't go to a functionality cost. standpoint. We didn't go to low-cost providers. Our... our costs in Asia came in a little less than what they came out of Vancouver, but we had duty rates on top of it. 
Some of them being just 30%. So we actually lost money by moving to Asia because of the factories we chose versus low-cost providers. But we were able to start to keep start to chase some of the demand and keep, start to get to where we didn't have a one-year wait on our products and start to service some of that demand to service our customers better. And we didn't have a choice. I would love to produce in the United States today. There's no facilities here that can produce our products. And there's no facilities here domestically that could keep up with the capacity that we have and the growth that we have ahead of us. You know, I've you know I've talked to to lots of people about this. If if Donald Trump is serious about raising duties and taxes and penalties for business for importing products to try to force companies here, it's going to be really challenging because for our industry, we they don't exist. So you can't just we can't just move production here, and those costs will get put back onto the customer if he's if that's his strategy. I don't believe it is because he's a really smart business person. I think he's I think his focus really is to keep the jobs here that can be here and move jobs back here that have the facilities to support those jobs um, versus just you know hammering businesses like ours because we have no choice. The next thing I want to ask you about is something that I really respect, and I just want to talk to you about it, and that's your level of willingness to be giving to conservation and specifically conservation that is directly related to hunting. Yep. And you have recently purchased the California Desert Bighorn Sheep statewide auction permit. You have done this personally. I did. Okay, so this is Jason Harrison personally buying the California auction tag. One of the things that strikes me with this is you could go and pay a quarter to a fifth of the money. Absolutely. You could go and probably go to Mexico and probably shoot a bigger sheep. On Tiburon? Yeah, I have a lot better odds. And and you could probably go kill five sheep (laughs) for the amount that you paid for the California tag. Absolutely, I could have. And... You have received a little bit of criticism from that. Again, me being your friend, someone that I've known for a while now and respect and have hunted with you and know how hard and just know how your philosophy is. I know that you're not really trophy mind oriented. You're adventure oriented. Absolutely. You don't base the quality of your hunt on the size of the animal. You base it on you know, isn't this a great trophy? It's phenomenal. Not what does it score? Not saying you haven't had things scored, but I, I've hunted with you. I've been side by side yep. looking at animals with you, and I know how you are. And then to hear you catch a little bit of flack over buying the California statewide tag, first question I would ask you is, why was it important to you to buy the California statewide tag? There's several motivations behind that. I think, you know, having grown up in the state, Built a company designed in and around sheep hunting, and you know sheep hunting is is obviously very important to me, and the challenges and rigors that come along with that. Obviously, the Grand Slam is is an accomplishment. I think every sheep hunter hopes to accomplish someday. To be able to to, to finish my Grand Slam here was one reason, but not the biggest reason. To be able to do it in my home state is special, and the desert I'll be hunting in is not far from where I grew up. It's about an hour and a half south. So that's going to have some some meaning for me. But really, if I went and bought a hunt in Mexico, none of that money is going to conservation of sheep, not going to habitat, not going to to guzzlers and 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 
biology and, and sheep counts and relocate. I mean, that money just gone. And it's even gone out of the country, right? And I felt fortunate to be in a financial position to not only realize a dream, but also to do it in a way that gives the money right back to my home state. 100% of it goes to to conservation of wild sheep in California, the studies of it, areas to open up and produce more tags. Because there's a lot of sheep in our state that haven't been surveyed yet. That money will go to that. That money is going to go to adding more guzzlers, you know, expanding habitat, and protecting wild sheep in California. And that's super meaningful to me. I mean, I've always been a big supporter of conservation from the time I was a kid. My dad and I have been going to Wild Sheep Foundation Convention since the 90s in Reno. We've gone to, you know, Rock Mountain Elk Foundation. We've been members for years, well before I got into the business. I launched both my companies at the conservation's national banquets at Wild Sheep, Rock Mountain Elk Foundation. Um, I've always given tons of product back. We've also written checks, made large donations and large contributions in my businesses uh, for the last 12 years that I've been in this industry. And we'll continue to. I, you know, We don't give back to the resource, especially as a business, especially personally for me. I mean, hunting's given me everything in my life that's special. It's been my connection with my father. It's my connection with my son. It's been my connection to the outdoors. It's been my medicine at times when life's been really challenging. And it's so meaningful to me. And it's given me so much in business and life that I want to get back to it. Um, and that giving money towards conservation, you know, does so much for, for the wildlife and habitat we love, but it does a lot for me too. I mean, personally, it feels really good to do that and be in a position to do that. And like you said, lot, <laughs> a lot more inexpensive ways to finish your Grand Slam than what I did. I just felt honored to have the opportunity to do this and to give back to my state, back to sheep that, um, you know, that live in there not far from where I grew up in. Yeah, I just think it's really cool to Isn't know it? what they're going to do with that money. It is. And to be able to do it in your home state, you know, where your dad started you hunting, where your dad still resides, which, by the way, I got to meet your dad at SCI and have dinner with him. And I told you. a real deal, isn't he? I told you after eating dinner with him, I know why you are the way you are after, you know, eating with your dad and getting to hear how he's just full of energy. Yes. He's passionate you can just see the drive but you can see the toughness yep my dad he's a tough my dad is tough, tough old school guy yeah i mean and uh you know he he instilled that in me yeah. and taught me hard work yeah and connected me with hunting and my dad's not just like a hunter i mean he is like Deep. Oh yeah, he shoots a longbow, wood arrows. I mean, he read bedtime stories. Me were Howard Hill, Jack O'Connor. I mean, and I loved it. Yeah, um, but he's really into the history of hunting and the roots and the background Tradition. of it. And, and he is, I mean, and and he's not just a hunter. I mean, he's all in. It's what he loves, as he talks about in that moose video that we we shot. I mean, that it set awesome. the tone for his entire life. And there's absolutely the fact to that. I mean, and I feel fortunate to grow up with him. Um, and uh yeah he's he's a big reason why i'm in the business today it's that common love you know we're sitting not very far away from uc davis yep i haven't had the fortune to go over and see the campus but driving in i saw all the signs for uc davis and so here you are you're in your hometown you've got you know your business here and you're not we're not very far from uc davis it wasn't very long ago that you were a high school 
football player that was too small. You were too small. You were not going to be a college football player. Well, let's back that up a little bit, Jay. So I was actually in high school I developed. It was crazy. It's where I grew up in Orange County. I mean, football was so competitive back then. When I was 8, 9, and 10 years old, I went out for general American football, they call it down there. I got cut. I look now with I, my son's nine. I could imagine having him go out for a sport and get cut. Talk about a humiliating, devastating, dream-smashing experience for three years in a row when you're 8, 9, and 10 as a kid. And I grew up with a dad that played linebacker in college. My older brother, for whatever reason, got all the genetic gifts and was the lucky one, although I think I'm the lucky one now as a young kid, and he was the captain of every football team, starting quarterback, linebacker. Here I was, the little skinny, younger brother with no athletic ability at the time, and getting cut from football teams. And I grew up in the shadow of this, like, the next stud, right, with a father that was a college football star. My mom was a head cheerleader, right? And that's how my football career started. And, uh, but I never, you know, what's interesting is, is that taught me so much in life, though. It, it taught me to continue to believe in myself, even though others didn't. And it taught me that, hey, you know, Jason, you can still achieve your dreams. It just may take you a lot more work than the average person or the guy that's got more gifts. Yeah. And uh, you know what I did with that time sitting on the sidelines because I couldn't play. It was listening to my dad critique my brother, teaching me the fundamentals of that position, which is how I ended up in the NFL. And, you know, I got to high school. I was still underdeveloped. I was tall and skinny. And I continued to work out. And by the time I got finished with high school. I was an all-state player, all-county player at linebacker. I was the 13th highest rated kid coming out of high school in Orange County to go to the to be as a recruit. And story of my life, Stanford comes in my living room very early on, offers me a scholarship. I'm going to Stanford, right? What a great opportunity to get a great education. The day of signing day, they call me and tell me they can't get me into school, which I learned all about the big business of college football. Every other school was interested in me. I'd already told I was going to Stanford. I had no place to go play football. That's actually how I ended up at Davis. Oh, my. And all, it was a t- typical type of thing, right? Here I go. I finally did all the hard work, and my dream got smashed again. So, and in other words, you didn't pursue any other opportunities because Stanford was on the table, and then the rug got pulled out from under Last you minute. It was gone. I went back to UCLA. I went back to all these other schools that wanted me, Too and they already gave up the scholarship. So, I had two choices, go to J.C., or use football to get a great education. And I, at the time, wasn't really thinking of Davis. They kept calling. I went up to visit. And you know, I walked on that campus. Back then, it was a Division two non-scholarship school for football. And when I walked on the campus, I mean, the high school, the stadium was smaller than my high school stadium. The locker room was worse. The facility was worse. But you know what's so cool is the players and the feeling I had there. My gut told me that's where I should go to school. And it's kind of what we have here. There was this overwhelming love of football. It came from the head coach, Soker, that had been there for years, his love of football. And everybody loved football. And it was everybody there kind of had a chip on their shoulder. They all felt like they got you know, bypassed from the big schools. And because of that, it ended up being a, the best choice I ever made in my life. And my gut is the only reason why I went there because everyone thought I was nuts. Like, Jason, you should go to JC for one year, go to go to USC or go to, or go to Cal. And... Uh, you know, it's given me everything in my life, my wife, my education. I live, you know, the next town over. My wife's family founded this town. And, um, you know, it, it also taught me that if I continue to hard do hard work through college, I ended up in the NFL. Um, that if you continue to believe in yourself, even when others don't, you can accomplish just about anything. I mean, I, I, 
in this business, in my athletic career, in my life, none of it's come easy. And I think it's fortunate because it's taught me everything so much along the way. Same thing happened with Sitka. You know, I <clears throat> finally, you know, started my dream. I figured it out when I was in my early thirties and, and came up with this idea with Jonathan on the mountain and, and built what I thought was my career. And, you know, we took an investment from Gore and October of 08, June of 09, I'm kicked out of my company. Bottom of the economy, no source of income, a daughter about to be born with a tumor in her left lung when she lives, a 22-month-old, and a house payment. And I was like, all right, here we go again, right? And, uh, you know, those lessons now I look back are wonderful. You may not understand them at the time, but as I look back now, those those really hard times you really have come to define me and, and it have created opportunities I've had in life. I can never imagine the time they happen. You just, you just don't see it at the time, but everything happens for a reason. And it's kind of the story of my life, right? It's created a drive. I love it. It's created that fire in your oh, belly yeah. and a drive and a chip. You know, Hey, when people just tell you, you can't do something, yeah. Jay, what does it do? Yeah. Do you believe them? No. It just ticks you off a little bit. Yeah. So really? Yeah. Some people use it as an excuse. There's others that are like like you, and I know what you, I know your history. That we just use it to motivate. I had um, I had I played college golf uh, at Grand Canyon University in in Arizona, and I was a justice studies major. And honestly, in college, I was just sliding by. I wasn't really applying myself. And I had a teacher of mine come up and asked to see me after class, and she said, "You know." I've been watching you all this year, and she said, I don't think you'll ever amount to anything. <laughs> yeah, nothing, Jay. And I said, and I internalized that, and then I knew that she was wrong. And I started my real estate career, and I started selling vacant land. And this was in the late 90s, and, you know, vacant land around where I was selling, you know, $25,000, 30000 improved lot very very wow. cheap for that area yeah had people say oh you'll never make any money why are you selling lots for twenty five thousand dollars and you know looking down their nose at me and it created kind of that chip of course it does it created that sense of i i can see past where you can see past i know if i apply Absolutely. myself that i can do something and you know, 10 years later, those same people were coming to me going, How'd Jay, I've got investors. Yeah. Uh, what kind of deals do you have? What do you know about this spot? What about, I've got this piece. Will you, you know, so. No, I, I, I relate to that a lot. And, and I think when we first get into business and what I've learned for myself, but it took me time. It took me almost to the end of Sitka to, to realize myself how I view things was different. And it was my advantage. In business, I look at things different. I think it's how I grew up. I was always trying to figure out my competitive advantage and how I looked at things different. So I think it's why, in a way, I could see this retail model failing when others didn't. And I think it's why I could see Kuyo as a consumer direct model working when others told me it never would work. And But it took me a while in business to get to that point where I could trust that. And I knew that as I was sitting in these rooms, and my opinions were different than so-called experts from Gore or CFO that had a Stanford and Harvard degree or my ex-business partner that I was actually, the way I viewed it was the right way. And as I, about the time I started, I started to realize that, and that I, just like you did with your business, all of a sudden you're like, everyone's telling me no. And it seems to make so much sense in my view, my gut and what my instincts are telling me. 
and now I trust it completely. Like right. everything my gut tells me is driven this brand today, but it takes a little bit in business. It creates, it creates a confidence inside it, but it you. takes some time, right? It takes time. It does. And I think it's just maturity in business yeah. and uh, always the challenge of business. And I see so many people that don't trust their instincts. And, I, and as people come to me as entrepreneurs, I got this idea, I got this and that. I said, don't, dude, the first thing you should do, write a bit, really detailed business plan, understand the financials, and then trust your instincts on it. Because everyone's going to tell, tell you why it's a bad idea. Yeah, and, and I think, too, people that don't – you can tell right away when you sit down with someone, do they believe in what they're doing? Yep. Instantly. Yep. And there's so many people out there that don't truly believe like you – in order to be successful and in order to be a successful entrepreneur – you could sit down. You're not going to let anybody tell you what you're doing or your idea is not going to work. Yep. There's no way. You have to like. You have to have so much confidence that you are going to push through any trial or adversity that you're going to get faced with. That Which you, is hard. Oh, buddy. It's hard. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. But if you don't believe it, who's supposed to? Yeah. That's good stuff. Uh I want to transition just a little bit here to you've got synthetics and you've got merino wool. Mm -hmm. First was merino. Yep. Then came synthetics. Yep. In your everyday hunts, do you choose synthetics more or merino more and why? I'm now 100% synthetics. Why? I, I like the way they perform better. And when we first got in the business, wool was, you know, give credit where credit's due, First Light brought it to market. It had previously become kind of hot in the outdoor industry. This, you know, ultra-fine merino fiber that they were able to harvest and produce these really soft wool garments that were comfortable and the inherent advantages that go along with that. And I believed it and I liked it and that's what we used and, until I went to New Zealand on a hunt. And... And it was the second year we were in business. So it was in 2012. Went down there and hunted with Sean Allison. And him and the other guide we were with were wearing synthetics. I'm like, what is this? You guys live in the heart of Marina Wool. You guys are wearing synthetics? Or all, yeah, mate. It doesn't dry. It's not very, not very durable. We hate Marina Wool. And it made me think, like, that's amazing. I mean, and they're hunting these big, huge mountain conditions. I know you've been down there, but that whole time I was thinking about it. And then I started thinking about my marina wool and we came back. I started researching synthetics and talking to her about synthetic knits and they developed a whole new line of synthetic knits and they were working on it about the time I approached them about it. And that's what we run for synthetics, all Tory prime flex yarn, which is amazing yarn, the high quality standards and their collections, the best in the world. Um, but really, you know, Merino's a Merino's a different type of fiber. It's it's you know it's it's hydrophilic, which means it pulls moisture into the fiber and then evaporates it off, and it just dries slow. Um, the advantage to to Merino, what people really liked, was the fact that it's made up by a protein called keratin protein. It makes up the fibers of Merino wool. Well, keratin protein is antimicrobial by nature, so it doesn't. That's why you can wear a Merino wool shirt day in and day out. It never stinks. Other than it stinks like merino wool and it's wet, has that kind right. of wet doggy smell. Um, and that's really where people found advantages to it. And synthetics, you know, without a great treatment to it, will get stinky short, you know, really quick. And once you kind of get that stink in, it's hard to get it out. Um, and that's why 
and, and Marina was new. Everyone likes new, and that's what you know gained a lot of traction. But from a from a materials perspective, if you truly understand the fiber and makeup of Marina wool, it's got a lot of disadvantages. Not very durable. It's very expensive. Holds moisture, and from performance fabric. Really, for merino wool, if you look at it, it's a better hot weather material than it is a cold weather material for a base layer. Um, you get the evaporative cooling effect you get when it evaporates off um, out of the fabric. When you're hunting in hot weather, you probably mm-hmm. notice that where you hunt, and I have too. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, on a sheep hunt, I'm 100% synthetic. And especially as a mid-layer, um, you get a lot higher warmth-to-weight ratio with a synthetic than a like our 210-gram two, merino wool product. I'm not trying to bash it. A lot of guys like merino wool. But for me, it's the performance advantage is night and day. So from a company standpoint, you're still going to provide both, Absolutely. but personally, it, it, I wear synthetics. Personally, you wear they last longer, they perform better, they dry faster. Um, I like all those advantages to it. Okay. Especially our nets. <laughs> They're just amazing. And with, with your synthetics, in your mind, what, have been the all-stars of the line that you've created specifically like in the nits yes i mean our our peloton 130 is amazing for how light it is and how durable. i mean the crazy thing is how durable that that nexus skin base layer is um we have a medical grade treatment to the fabric that keeps odor out of it it's the best we've ever tested and i've been through the silver treatments the silver yarns every antimicrobial treatment that's been out there for the last 15 years I've looked at and tested. This is by far the best. And it's a, again, it's another Tory chemical that they developed for the, for the hospitals to kill bacteria. And we've applied it to fabric for the first time. And it's, it's amazing. It came out of their hospital um, segment or group of their business. Um, and it works really well. And our, but my favorite is the current favorites on the markets, the two to 200 gram. And it's so it's what you're wearing right now. It's so soft. It's got that nice jersey face that gives you abrasion mm-hmm. resistance. But um, the the prototype I'm wearing right here is a new f- product that's coming out online this year. It's called a Peloton 97. It's the world's lightest jersey fleece. So it weighs only 97 grams. So it's it's less than half the weight of your 200. And it has the same face. And it's got it's just a thinner fabric, but it's a jersey fleece. So it gives you a little bit of abrasion protection. So it's also. Nice and soft on the inside. Nice and soft on the inside like yours, but it's half the weight. What you get out of it is a really thermoregulator. You can either wear it next to your skin or as your second layer. And it's one of those pieces you never get hot, and you're you're surprisingly how warm it'll keep you in in colder temperatures. And that comes out later this year. I've been eyeballing that today, actually going, what? What shirt is that? It is, it is the most amazing fabric. I mean, it's the world's lightest jersey fleece ever been created. 97 grams. I don't know if you're not in the... Yeah, not everyone said fabric expert. That's amazing. And I love Tori for that stuff. Yeah, and that's where they separate themselves and being able to work with them like you do. That's yep. where that it, comes. That's in. where it comes from. It's weight. It's worth its weight in gold. It is, and like a ninety-seven gram jersey fleece, no one else can produce it because their yarn's not high enough quality. So you, if if another mill produces this, it will fall apart below those holes in it and, and become pilled really quickly. They can do it because their fabrics, their their raw material and their yarn is such high quality. They can go so light and not give up performance. It's what makes them so so special. I heard that you have a gear line coming out for workouts and training for hunts. Yeah, we are. It's, it's been a process. Um, 
for us, it's been timing. It's pretty well developed and pretty well tested for us. It's just been timing on release. I was thinking it was going to be this year, this spring, but we've decided to push it to next year just so we can focus inventory dollars on first keeping our core product lines in, in stock as our demands, you know, just skyrocketed. So I think it's going to come out next year. Let's talk, let's talk about, um, I'm anxious to see that, but let's talk about inventory. You bring up the word inventory and I've watched you grow this company and all along the original challenges were, it, there was so much demand. It was hard to keep up with inventory. Oh, we didn't even come close. Not even it, close. It seems I was just down in the warehouse. It seems as though right now you're pretty well stocked and have quite a bit of inventory. T- talk about that constant struggle for people out there that are consumers. They just expect that if you have it, that you're just going to have it in your. If you have it in your product line, you're going to have I, endless I, supply. But it's not way. that easy. I'm right? the same way with stuff I want to buy. When I want to buy, it, I want to buy it. I mean, it's the customer today, right? They deserve that. What. There's a big strat. There's a lot behind our lack of inventory. And what I learned, the lesson, one of the biggest lessons I learned at Sitco is we chased demand every year with raising money. Diluted me down to owning 32% of the company at the end, and I lost my company because of it. And as we grew, we added more investors, we added people like Gore, the dynamics and the culture and the vision for that brand changed. And what I refused to want to do is that same experience again. And not just to lose control and lose my company, but to change what this company stood for, which is a customer. And I knew if I raised money and brought in outside investors that I would have to change this business to focus on their return on investment and start to make decisions what's best for them, what's best for the business in regards to money, not what's best for the customer. And so I built a plan to grow at 110% a year to get to profitability, which we did in 2015, get SBA financing, which we did in 2015, to get to a point where I can then start to catch up with the demand and get to a point now where we just did another big financing round to where I can raise a lot of money to continue to grow this brand and not dilute myself out to where I could even come close to losing control because what I don't want to change is what has made this brand special. And what we've done is is very unique and very different and it's totally different mindset and approach to, to business is to give up growth, to c- continue to maintain what the ethics are and what this brand stands for and how we do business. And now we're at a point where we can do that and we can now continue to expand and grow it. And this brand will continue to, to deliver on what my promise has been since day one for a long time. That won't happen if you, if you do yourself out. And because of that, one of the things I had to give up was inventory. So there was a lot out of stocks. We had a one-year wait, nine-month wait for a guy jacket. It's a one-year wait in our tack pants. And I knew customers were growing frustrated, but I knew what the end game would be if I had just stayed true to our plan, which has worked out now really well. So from a customer standpoint, inventory levels for the next 12 months are going to be much better than they have we're been. Thought, we're sitting on more inventory, the highest inventory, the highest percentage of in stocks that we've ever had since before we launched. Highest and healthiest inventory position we've ever been in. And our goal now is, and our key drivers aren't seasonal like Tiburon or some of our winter products, is to never be out of stock in them. The customer wants to get a pair of attack pants. They should always be able to get an attack pant. They need a guide jacket. They get a guide jacket. That's our goal. Um, we'll be perfect. No, we're going to be a lot better than we've ever been. And, you know, our goal is to get there. 
um, and allow us to focus on keeping those inventories in stock. It's why I pushed fitness, pushed some of the lifestyle pieces that were going to come out. Why I pushed youth is this year needs to be focused on staying in stock and the core drivers of our business that our customers need and be able to, they should be able to get them whenever they want. Sounds easier than it is to do. Yeah. Especially I, I with can, this amount of growth. I can imagine. And we but, have one year wait, uh, one year lead times, right? So there's a lot of, yeah. The, there's a lot of forecasting and, and data management yeah. now with demand where and all the data analytics we can crunch now on demand, future demand analytics. We've gotten a lot better and we're going to get continue to get a lot better than that. One of the products that I just absolutely love that really has nothing to do with hunting is the shorts that I have on now. The, <laughs> the Tiber on shorts. I have two pair of kind of the sandy brown. I'm not even yep. sure what color you call them. Major brown. Major brown. One pair of gray and one pair of Verde 2.0. I have four pairs of Kuyu shorts. And my wife laughs because it's all I wear. Me too. And I have managed to go the whole time through all of the winter, which I live in Scottsdale, Arizona, so it's not a huge feat. But <laughs> I have not worn pants. I've worn shorts. Good and I've you. worn Kuyu shorts because I love them. The other day we w- went somewhere and she said, you have some khaki shorts. We're going to the country club to eat with some friends. They invited us. And she's like, it's kind of dressy, you know, and was urging me to get out of my Kuyu shorts. I'm like, I'm wearing my Kuyu shorts. Like, this is God what I wear. You, uh, and it's it's what I can cons- fishing. So I fish, you know, four or five days a week in the summer from May 15th to, you know, August 15th. I wear my Kuyu shorts. This is more what I would call lifestyle it brand is. or lifestyle piece. Yep. Can we expect more lifestyle yep. stuff out of Kuyu? Absolutely. And we got tons of requests for it. You're going to start to see a little bit of that this year, more next, a lot more next year. You'll see it initially with color choices, and you're going to see new colors, a lot of new, like a bunch of new colors coming this year we haven't had. I mean, before we've been very vanilla in our colors, brown or gray. Yeah. So people can hide in it that don't want to wear camo. Now we're going to see really useful colors that will work in the field, but we're going to see some new colors, some new color choices. We're going to have the guide jacket in black. We're going to have the snap shirt in black. We're going to have other products that um, maybe a little, I don't know if fashion forward is the right word, but more kind of standard fashion brand colors. Mm-hmm. Um, along with colors that can be used in the field as well. Cause we're just getting tons of requests for it. And, you know, with a, you've seen how much PR and press we've been getting as a business. I mean, we get a lot of people coming to Kuyu to look at the products and, you know, camo. They don't want to go camo. They don't want just gray or brown. They want a different color, yeah. but they love the product. They love what the brand stands for. They want to be part of it. We're seeing a lot of that right now. Um, I think, you you know, Kuyu is in, a, in just as, as I see it from, from looking at it from inside out. That this brand to me has a different feel than any brand has ever had in hunting before. It's a brand that people want to be associated with it and find cool. And maybe that's just how I perceive it, but I don't remember James Hetfield ever wrapping his guitar with another camo pattern or you know, <laughs> Kid Rock's working on wrapping his right now and we have, you know, celebrities and athletes and wearing it in post game interviews and I think people are excited to be part of this brand. And yeah, but I've to never be clear, seen like these aren't guys you're paying. No, I never these are one. guys that love the product. Yeah, James Hetfield called and asked, like, would it be okay if I wrap my guitar and like and customer service came with it? And I'm like 
I asked him, like, his agent who's putting this together, I'm like, well, yeah, what does he want for it? You know, normally they, you, they charge you a fortune. No, he just would really appreciate it if, if, if he could wrap it. And you know, what would you charge him to wrap? I'm like, oh, he could wrap it for free. I mean, <laughs> I don't care. This is awesome, right? But, and, you know, Joe Rogan's a big proponent of it. None of these people are paid. They just love yeah. what the brand stands for. And it's, it's so cool to see. I and mean, we've got customers tattooing the logo on their arms and, um, you know, we've created something really unique for this industry that hasn't existed. You know, there hasn't been a brand that stands for something that people want to be associated with in hunting in a long time that they're proud of. Um, you know, we didn't set off to do that, but, you know, it's just unique. And I think what that's creating is attraction from outside our brand. We're getting coverage in Outside Magazine with our new boot program. We're getting coverage in, you know, mainstream media and press. We had that article I worked on in the New York Times. I just was on, you know, Mornings with Maria on Fox Business for the I second time. I mean, it's just... It's the coolest thing ever. Can't believe it. Who would have guessed five and a half years ago? No. Right? <laughs> really? Yeah, it's really neat to see. I want to ask you about, um, you've been asked to do something that is probably more important than anything you've probably ever done. Um, it is, by far. You've actually... I'll let you go ahead and tell about it because I, I don't know much about it, but you've actually have something to me that is as as big of an honor as something that you could possibly it, be asked for. It is the biggest honor I've ever been asked to, uh, that I've ever had the chance to um, ask to be to do this. Right? It's and you know what's so interesting about it is is I never set off with this goal. Like I didn't I didn't get involved with the Trump campaign for my own self-interest. I did it because I was friends with Donald Trump Jr. And that's how I am as a friend. And, you know, I had that original, I don't know if I told you the whole story about that, but, you know, I was on a, just a phone conversation. This is back in like November, December, and his dad was, you know, still trying to become the Republican nominee in 2015. And it was just chat with him about it. Also, his dad's getting momentum. And I didn't really ask him about it much because I just felt like it was political and politics, just something I wasn't interested in. But I asked him, I said, you know, dad's getting pretty good momentum. Um, you know, what is his position on hunting? I know what his was, but what was his dad's? And, uh, he said, you know, my dad knows what hunting and conservation mean to my brother and I, how impactful it's been. And he's going to support through us conservation, habitat, wildlife. And, you know, if he's elected president, we can make some significant change that will benefit our heritage and our sport and the wildlife that we love and conservation initiatives. And, uh, so I said, you know, my thing, I said, Junior, well, what's your plan? We need to connect him to our industry, our people, hunters, because there's no way anyone's connected us that Donald Trump gives a two cents about hunting. And uh, he's, I don't have one. So I said, can I help with it? With it? And I held a meeting in, in Vegas that we've talked about and invited 50 CEOs from our industry and brought his dad in and Junior and Eric and let them tell their story about why hunting's important to Donald Trump through his kids. Because I felt like we needed to tell the authentic story because what's been done previously from politicians is the dead pheasant, the orange hat and a fake picture. None of us trust it or believe it. It's there to try to get to fake some votes in from hunters. And then they, Donald Trump asked me to come out to Iowa and help him there. And then I, you know, created sportsman for Trump and did was vocal about who they were as people on my, on my blog and through the business and took lots of hits for it. Huge risk. I did. I got blasted for it. You know, people keep your business out of politics. People threatening not to do business with me. And I had people tell me it was dangerous. And I said, 
I'm not telling anyone how to vote. I'm just telling them about the people I know personally. They can do what they want with information. They can choose to vote for whoever they want to vote. But I feel like it's my duty to help them be better educated and why they would support hunting and the heritage is so important to me and who they were as people that I knew versus what the press is making them out to be. Um, and then, you know, it became president, which was pretty awesome to see. And, you know, and, and as that my friendship has grown with Donald Trump Jr., you know, his thoughts were he'd be Secretary of Interior so that he could impact what was so important to him with conservation, wildlife, and habitat. And shortly after, but, you know, those guys had their heads just down, grinding day in and out. It's like they won the election. It was like, oh, my God, what did we just accomplish? Now that, you know, they kind of scrambled to put everything together. But Jr. hadn't realized that he couldn't be Secretary of Interior because his father was president. It was illegal. And then... Because he was running his dad's business, he had a huge conflict with anything to do with politics in D.C. Because his other goal was then to become an advisor to the Secretary of Interior to make sure we were getting as much done as possible for conservation, wildlife, and habitat. While his dad was president and his dad oversaw the Secretary of Interior. And then he realized he couldn't do that either. And so he called me and said, Jason, I need you to fill a role that I can't fill. And I want you to work as um, Secretary of Interior's advisor for hunting, conservation, wildlife, and habitat, and all the initiatives and issues that we're facing. And advise him and on who to work with, what issues should we, we should be focused on, what the solutions are, and help him be as efficient as possible while my dad's president of the United States. And I couldn't be more honored. I mean, talk about being able to give back to a heritage and a sport that's given me so much in my life and do it in such an impactful way in such a big way is just, it's humbling. It's amazing. And I'm just thrilled to have this opportunity. I'm taking it very, very serious because it is a big, big, big opportunity for everybody that hunts. So if I hear you correctly, what you're saying is you are going to have the ability to advise the secretary of the interior to have a direct voice in his ear to help in ways of conservation, hunting, fishing, the sportsman way of life. In yep. other words, he is relying on me to tell him what he should be focusing on. What are the finding the solutions, the peoples and groups and people that will support get those initiatives accomplished and done so that he doesn't have to spend his time to figure it out or to work on things that either will get tied up in litigation and we'll never get anything accomplished with or issues and items that that either aren't as important that we shouldn't be that because we, we can only get so much done in a short period of time, and we have to be as effective as possible. So my goal is to work with the different conservation organizations I already have started. I've been out to D.C. twice, had meetings with them to start to identify. You know what is the what is everybody's bigger issues? What are the ones they're concerned about? What are the some of the smaller issues they're concerned about? And figure out what the what the common theme is of what we need to get accomplished. And then work with those groups to determine what those solutions are, the best way to solve that problem in their perspective. A lot of them have been house legal teams. You know, if we have to change law, write what the new law or the new association be. Let me take that to Zinke. And let's let him focus on solving those problems that we as a collective group identified the ones we need to get done while we have him in office. Because, like I said, we can't get it all done. A lot of the big, huge changes that everyone likes to see sound great. But the reality is what I've learned, we may spend four years, get it accomplished, then it gets tied up in litigation for the next four years, and, and we spend all our time on something that isn't 
realistic to get done. And and the cool thing with Zinke is, I mean, his number one objective that is such a hot topic now is public lands. And he is 100%, as am I, keeping public lands public. And, you know, there's been speculation around, for whatever reason, that may I may have self-serving interest to sell off public lands and see them private. I mean, that is the furthest from the truth. It's where I grew up hunting. It's what I've cut my teeth on. It's what I've learned to hunt out on is public lands. We, I hunt every year on public lands. For anyone to say that I'm not in support of keeping public lands public doesn't know who I am as a person. Yeah. And same with Secretary of Interior. In fact, we have Zinke only because of Donald Trump Jr., the Republican Party wanted a, a lady from Washington, I think she's a senator or congressman, to become Secretary of Interior, and she wasn't pro-public land. She wasn't pro-hunting and conservation. She had totally different agendas. Uh, Junior realized the pressure from the Republican Party and went to his dad the last minute and said, Dad, I'm, I'm going to throw all my chips in for your help, for my help and support to get you that I did to help you get elected as President of the United States. And I, need, I want to introduce you to, to Ryan Zeke. He sh- needs to be our Secretary of Interior for these reasons. And the next day, he flew him out, interviewed him, and, and he was appointed. He was in the new Secretary of Interior after that. It wouldn't have happened without Junior. It was the Republican Party was going to put somebody in that would have been the opposite of who we needed. So what you're saying, though, is we have probably one of the biggest advocates for hunting, conservation, and sportsman issues. And wildlife issues, we have probably the best opportunity right now with Zinke as the Secretary of Interior. And then having you have the ability to, I don't hear you saying what I want to do and what I believe. No, no, I hear about you me. saying we, it's all about conservation we. groups, and, and, and the hunters. What's important to the hunting community? Right. What are the issues? What are you guys worried about? Right. And I'm here to listen. Right. I'm here to work with the conservation organizations and the and the hunter advocacy and hunters' right organizations to figure out what are those issues and what are the ones that we can get solved with, with now that we have Zinke in office and Trump support. Um, what are the things we can get done? And that's what we need to focus on. How much change can we make over the next four years? That's what we need to focus on. So and in other we words, we take advantage of this as much as possible. And what he's asking me to do is, is make it as efficient as possible for him to get as much done. Cause you gotta realize, I mean, he's head of, you know, department of interior, natural resources. He's got second amendment issues. He has, you know, oil and gas industries. I mean, he is, has a lot on his plate. So I'm here to help him focus, to find the groups and people that will help us to listen to the hunters and what is important to them. And to bring that package of things that we need to work on the solutions the people that can help us get it done to Zinke. And what an honor, right? I mean, what an honor. Yeah. I'm just I'm just thrilled. And then the other great thing is when I first went out to meet with him and sat down in his office, we I have a relationship with Jeff Short, long relationship with Jeff Short, who's a biologist, was head biologist for, for Idaho. Now he's with Fishing Game or with Wyoming Fishing Game. We're at SCI, and I've gotten to know his boss, Scott Talbert. You know, he's dealt with a, a lot of the issues that we face in the West Wolves, natural resources, oil and gas, hunting, um, grizzly bears, and is kind of a no-nonsense, roll-up-your-sleeves kind of guy. And when I went out and met with, with Zinke the first time, this is right after SCI, 
and we talked about fish and wildlife appointment. He's, he said he'd been given kind of six different names and interviewed him, hadn't really found the guy. And I introduced him to Scott and he's now going to be the head in fish and wildlife. And, uh, and so Scott's very appreciative of making this huge career change for him. That's, that's going to change his life. Zeke is appreciative because I made an introduction to Scott. And those two get along and see eye to eye really well. And they're going to help us make a change that, you know, I'm going to have access to both those guys. And that's, Really, really important if we're going to make change, and we've got to do it together. And the other thing we're going to do is really take a holistic approach and view. I mean, we have to consider natural resources as part of what we try to accomplish over here with conservation and wildlife and habitat and public lands. And, you know, to, to think that, you know, this country doesn't need its natural resources, it should all be about the, you know, about, you know, wildlife conservation habitat only is kind of narrow minded. I mean, we have to work together to make sure that we have you know, smart natural resources, the use of it, and, and, and getting and taking those natural resources you know, from, from our, our lands and our public lands, but also you know, tie it back into conservation, take a holistic approach, because then everyone can win and we can be in a better position in four to eight years if we, if we look at it that way as a, as a collective whole. And that hasn't been done from what I hear. Because, I, I mean, again, I'm stepping into this with no political background, or understanding how all this stuff works. So I'm just learning and listening. And like you said, I'm just, it's about we. I'm just at a point to, I'm in a position to where I will be there to help. And it's not my choices. Right. I'm not making the decisions. I'm presenting the information, the solutions. Jason, I've got a question. I think it's very important. I want to ask you, I, I, I want to be really clear about my question. Are you interested or are you for the sale of our public lands that we hunt and fish on absolutely not never have been would never support it it's where i grew up hunting it's where i can still hunt every year it's where i've taught my son to hunt public lands need to remain public i think we need to figure out a way to better manage them that are federally owned. I think the government's done a poor job of managing them. And I think part of it's because they're local issues that they don't know how to manage those local issues better than, than you know, local people, but to sell them off because of that, or to sell them off um, for any other reason is uh, I'd be absolutely adamantly again. I've always have been, um, I haven't been maybe as vocal about my position on it. I think, you know, there's been, you know, maybe competitors or people within the industry that have tried to use that against me. To say that I'm, you know, for some reason for the sale of public lands because of my association with Donald Trump, the Trumps or Trump Jr., or the fact that I have the opportunity now and the resources to hunt on private land, I've been, always been against it. And um, I would never be for the sale of public land. And, you know, I don't bang my chest about conservation as much as, as other brands do. I've just been always been a big contributor to conservation financially sat on the board of california wild sheep foundation for years i've donated time and money and resources to support conservation i just never use it to advertise the brand i don't pound my chest about it i just do it um and to use that against me and say that I'd, all of a sudden i don't support conservation of public lands is those people just don't know who i am do you think having zinke as the uh in charge of the Department of Interior for a sportsman is one of the best things that could have happened to us? It's the most significant thing that's happened to us since Teddy Roosevelt. We will be able to make more change that is positive for hunting, positive for sportsmen, 
positive for wildlife, habitat, and conservation than we've had since Teddy Roosevelt. And we have to take advantage of this opportunity. We need the conservation organizations all to come together. We need the sportsmen's all to come together and quit pointing fingers and picking sides and, and throwing people under the bus that, and making up things that may, that aren't true to, to benefit themselves. We have to come together as a community of hunters. We have to come to, uh, together as a community of conservationists and organizations that support hunting rights because we have an opportunity right now to make as much change as possible. And that's what I feel like my goal to do is, is to pull everyone together. And, and as a group, we can do some amazing things if we do that. Yeah, definitely when the group gets fractured and going, you know, this way and that way. and Everyone's got their opinions about this and everyone's got their opinions about that. Instead of rallying together and say, let's come together as a group and let's find out what works best for everybody. Absolutely. Yeah. And attack it together, we can do a lot. And we have to do a lot because this window of time goes by so fast and there's so much we can get done, so much we need to get done that if we're fragmented and arguing, you know, it's just going to limit how much we can accomplish. Well, I'm excited about your opportunity that you get. I'm humbled, I'm honored, yeah. and um, I will do everything I possibly can and do as much as I possibly can to help hunters, help conservation, help wildlife, habitat, sportsmen's rights while I'm playing the, the role of advisor to Secretary and Terry Zinke. Besides, the way, besides, wait till you meet him. This guy is awesome. I mean, he is the real deal. He was the commander of SEAL Team 6. He's an ex-football player at the University of Oregon, understands how to, you know, what hard work and suffering and grinding and determination can get you in life, and he's absolutely determined to apply it to what he's doing as Secretary of the Interior, and we couldn't have a better advocate. Um, Scott Tolbert, who I helped get uh, the uh, appointment for Head of Fish and Wildlife, same type of guy. I mean, roll up the sleeves, get stuff done. And they're both really focused and very motivated to do as much as possible while, they're, while they have those positions. That's great. I'm excited for yeah, that. Yeah, me too. Isn't it great? Yeah. It's neat to it's see it come full circle, right? Yeah. It, it really it, is. And a lot of people question my you know, pol- political stance with Trump and is he the right guy and all this. But I knew this could be possible. I just didn't know it was going to be me at the time. But I knew this could be possible if we pulled this off. And here we are. I just humbled to be me working with the Secretary of Interior. Well... It's exciting to me because I know you. I don't know those guys, but I know you. And I've been able to see your judgment in lots of situations. And I've hunted side by side with you. And I know how you are. And I'm excited that you are going to have somewhat of an ability to give uh, and sway opinion and what have you. And be a voice for sportsmen. And I think it's... uh, yeah, this is an opportunity for all of us. I don't look at it as an opportunity for me at all. I mean, this is for hunters, our heritage, wildlife, and um, I'm just here to help in every way possible and and help him, help Zeke, and help Scott, head of Fish and Wildlife, get as much done as possible. That's my goal. That's our goal. Looking forward to seeing how it shakes out. I know it's we're going to do some great things. We are. And I just we are. All of us sportsmen can rally around and, yeah. and come together and yeah one of the things i really want to try to do uh, it's gonna take some work to get there but i want to create a a website around my role and really just to be a portal for information what we're working on what are the challenges keep people updated and informed the reality of what we're working on because i think so much in politics gets spun out in negative ways 
And my hope is that we can make it a reliable source that people can trust that is accurate, that has no political agendas. I'm not getting paid to do any of this. I, re- I had some suggestions that, you know, we should get some donors to give me funding to do what I'm doing. I said, absolutely not. I don't want to owe anybody anything. I don't want to be paid for it. I just want to volunteer my time. So I have one, one thing to do, and that is to help the hunters, wildlife and habitat, and to help Zinke get as much done as possible. I have nothing tied to me to force me to make any decisions other than what's best for that. It's going to be great. I think the opportunity is fantastic. Looking, time. looking forward uh, over the next couple of months, um, do you have any hunts on the horizon? What do you have going on moving yep. into summer? I know you've got some great hunts coming up this Yeah, summer. not as much as I did last year. Last year was crazy. Um, I've got, I, I'm, I'm doing a hunt up in BC. I'm actually hunting with Donald Trump Jr. on a stone sheep hunt up with uh, uh, Art Thompson at Gundahu. And he's got a great area. I've never hunted there. He's a, absolutely awesome human being and they slayed them last year didn't they, they? killed some giants and giants. they walked away from some giants and they found giants they never got to uh with clients because they couldn't get there because the clients weren't in good enough shape so there's some big there's some big rams in this area i'm looking forward to that hunt um i was just in new york city last week and I, it was funny i met with donald trump jr and i met with two secret service people because they got to go with us <laughs> And then building out their gear list for them, getting them sized up. And that, that's going to be kind of an interesting experience to, to hunt with Secret Service until uh, I told them, like, they're like, well, how fit do we need to get? It's like, uh, the best shape of your life, and you're, you're running behind. Yeah. <laughs> Start running. Yeah. So that should be interesting. And then uh, I've got a blacktail hunt where I hunt a blacktails in Northern California. That's a, a local hunt that'll be fun. And then hunting elk on the climbing arrow that you've hunted. And then I'm focused on my desert bighorn tag. I mean, I, I basically cleared my, my calendar and, and had opportunities other tags I'd turned down just to focus this fall on, on that desert because uh, you know, I want to be there at scouting and be there um, as part of the process of finding this thing and, and finding the sheep. And, and I'm just take most advantage of that time. Yeah, I'm excited to see how um, everything shakes out for yeah. you. And- It'll happen the way it's supposed to, Jay. I, lo- I love watching you and Brendan on your sheep hunts and seeing the pictures when you get back. And um, I, I'm fortunate. I drew a. I put in an Alaska and darn. I drew mountain goat tags. Yeah, that's awesome for uh, this August. And then, of course, have you hunted goats? Have not hunted goats. You'll love it. And um, excited to go to Alaska. Excited to hunt goats. And um, then, of course, looking forward to 2018 with the Northwest Territories hunt um, with Arctic Red. Yeah, you love that hunt. And super excited. First time doll sheep hunting. So I'm ready. It's, uh, it's such your wheelhouse. You're just going to eat it up. I can't You'll wait. walk every day with a smile on your face no matter how long or how tough the days are. Just knowing you. Yeah, I, I, I just am. I want to. I just want to go for the adventure and the experience. It is, and, of course. You know, it's the best part about could, it. Hopefully, we can look at a bunch of rams and just take it all in. And what I like about Arctic Red, it's different. I mean, they do no scouting and they don't put you on a sheep. I mean, it you you earn your sheep there, and there's a sense of satisfaction you'll really appreciate from that. It's not for everybody, yeah, but it's you know, it's a really really amazing place to hunt and to spend ten days in looking for sheep. Yep, I'm excited. So, well, buddy, it's been awesome spending time here at the Kuyu headquarters. It's really good to have you here. Yeah, it's been fun. Yeah, you picked a good day. I mean, got a lot going on. This is not untypical from our days here. As you've seen, a lot of people doing a lot of things, and uh, it's never a dull moment. I'll tell you that. Yeah, it, it's there's so much energy here. Um, I'm just enthused just 
being here and seeing the excitement, you know, down to every level. And I've talked with a bunch of your employees yeah. and everybody's just fired up and, and, uh, it's, it's, you know, I, I know they get it from you, yeah. but you also have a great staff that internally, you know, they've got a fire within them. They do. They do some amazing things. I tell you, it's awesome and it's contagious and we just love what we do here. It's a very special place. I got to pinch myself every day. I get to get up and come in here. It's good stuff. It is. Thanks, Jay. All right. Appreciate your friendship. Appreciate you coming here. And, uh, you know, I love talking shop with you. It's always fun. You got great questions. Always. Sounds good, buddy. I look forward to doing it again. I can't wait.